Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Jay Anelli, Master Thopterist. I'm Andrew Weissel, Terror of Calcisma. And I'm Carrie, the Awakener. No comma. <laughs> so, today we have uh, quite a few things to talk about. We've got a bunch of Core 2019 previews we're going to discuss. But uh, we also got a new story. And we have some thing we're going to be a little bit critical of that I think we should just dive into here first. So as of, it would be two weeks ago by the time this podcast comes out, Wizards of the Coast has dropped the translation for Magic Story into Spanish and French. Yep, they dropped French last year. This is not a story-driven decision. This is coming from the localization teams who don't find it cost-effective worth the time to translate the stories because they figure people can get that information elsewhere and readership isn't high enough and all these businessy reasons but this was brought to our attention a week after we had a episode raving about the global series and how it's really pushing magic as this global brand so to drop the Spanish language localizations for Magic Story immediately after all these uh, Chinese cards were shown off is a really bad look and a really bad move for keeping the Vorthos community engaged across the globe. This is absolutely not great. Yeah. yeah, this is absolutely a call out, Wizards. What the hell are you doing? Because you now have huge chunks of your community who can't read your story that should be able to read your story you know there is i think we've had a lot of discussions about this on the uh, vorthos discord where there are both portuguese and native spanish speakers that have been discussing how these things usually go down and even translators uh and it is just kind of distressing honestly it's very hard to take the global series seriously as anything other than a cash grab for the Chinese market. And the cherry on top of all this is that they are retweeting fan summarizations of the content and fan translations of the content instead of having professionals do it in-house for pay. So using unpaid fan labor on top of cutting the translations altogether. Let's move on to happier things. Core 2019 previews. Holy crap, is Core 2019 more flavorful than I ever thought it would be before, like, last week, or two weeks ago when they announced, um, I guess three weeks ago, when they announced that Elder Dragons would be involved. So, let's dive in. We, at this point, have all five Elder Dragons to talk about. I'm a little disappointed Ugin isn't going to be in the set, but, you know, it is what it is. It would have been cool to get a Ugin creature card, but I understand the the uh, thought process. Ethan Fleischer put out a really good article about uh, the the design and development process, which he was kind of in charge of both, so he, he got away with putting a lot of flavor in here. And poor Piru, who doesn't ever get to appear in anything except... A little bit of story. I mean, technically, she, technically, her soul is in every image with the black blade in it. So she's in three cards. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about Nicol Bolas. We talked about Nicol Bolas the Ravager last time, so I'm going to skip over that. Uh, we didn't know what it was called yet, but I, I had said that playmat looked a lot like a creature art, and it turned out it was. The flip side is, oh, well, first, let's mention something Andrew's a big fan of. In order to transform into Nicol Bolas the Arisen, it has a rather large mana sink. I think it's like seven mana. It's like four and then uh, the Grixis colors, something like that. It's the co- it's a cost you would see associated with a Nicol Bolas Planeswalker card. So that's pretty neat. Do you want to describe why you think that's flavorful? Yes tentatively because it this kind of seems neat because it ties back to uh, what is not canon anymore but was at the time when the elder dragons were originally printed in legends this is if you uh listen to our podcast on 
the his kind of the history of magic story this is during the pre-revisionist era where basically anybody in the multiverse could become a planeswalker if they had enough mana bonds and were able to cast powerful enough magic so this is kind of hearkening back the feel of it at least to Nicobolus being able to conjure up seven whole mana which in you know flavorful terms is like an awful lot of mana this is a big <laughs> spell so like the idea that in pre-revisionist times for Bolas to become a planeswalker all he would need to do is make a whole bunch of mana bonds what we've yet to see is his actual moment of ascension to a planeswalker in the story which i assume we will get because this is the nickel bolus set and he has his origin style creature planeswalker double face card so whenever his spark moment happens in the story we'll find out exactly what this ability is supposed to represent but for now i think it has this kind of really cool meta connection to how planeswalkers used to be thought about in magic stories when the elder dragons were first so nickel bolus the arisen is interesting because you're right it's not like right after he uh ascended it is actually when he was reborn in time spiral which we've discussed in this podcast before we see nickel bolus complete with the gem of becoming again uh but also his elder dragon armor i guess uh since some of the other elders have similar armor and it shows him in front of the talon gates so what's cool about this is that it's almost a complete match for the more stylized version of the same event in the eldest reborn so this is the eldest reborn and nickel bolus arisen are if you put them side by side basically the same scene so that's pretty cool the other four Elder Dragons, we got Vivictus Asmadi, the Dyer. Uh, he has, I thought it was neat, he had one of the, the weirder card arts of the old one. It was just kind of like a fish head kind of looking thing. So He's got like little fin chops on him. <laughs> he was just clubbing in Tokyo in the 70s while they were filming Godzilla vs. Hedra and had one of those fish heads. <laughs> heads when the main character gets drunk and that's a godzilla deep cut so (laughs) i love that movie that movie's so good that's that scene is so good it doesn't make any sense it's wonderful uh but the art is so much better for vivictus this time around and he has a completely different ability this time around, which is interesting. Flavorfully, some of them mirror their old abilities, uh, but Vivictus just went a completely different direction. So what's cool about the Elder Dragons is that even though they're three-colored creatures, each one is kind of centered in a color. You know, Bolus is Grixis, but he's, his character and abilities are kind of centered in black. Uh, Vivictus is the quote-unquote red dragon, so his original card had three different fire-breathing abilities, but this card lets him uh, chaos warp everybody, which is just one of the most hilarious red cards ever printed, even though it's a color bright break. It, it's fine on his card because he has the black and green, but the fact that the red one is the one that just causes all this aggressive random destruction still fits i think the essence of the character even though the mechanic is completely different so then we have palladia moors the ruiner palladia is the green centered elder dragon her card is the closest mechanically to the old card they just threw on some extra abilities in there and uh what's very very cool is the flavor text this is the first time the elder dragon war has ever been mentioned on a magic card I also love that it mentioned that she is uh, Nicol Bolas's sister. A whole bunch of people lost their minds at that because they didn't realize the Elder Dragons were connected like that. Siblings? Yeah. Yeah. It's strange. I like her armor for mirroring Bolas and her kind of general body structure being a very close match to Bolas's. Yeah. But yeah, they kept her horns from the original series. Um, her, her horns literally matched her original art and the comic series. 
both Palladia and Bolas have uh, the same artist, Svet- Svetlin Velenov, who is one of my favorite artists in Magic, and he did a really good job matching them up. He It seems like he did a million pieces. <laughs> yeah, also, it does. Palladia and Bolas are both doing that same breath thing. The weird, not hmm. ghostly fire. I won't go that far, but it yep. is a blue mixed <laughs> with red and orange fire. There you go. She she has the same short face he does, and um, she her ears matches also, or I don't know if they're actually ears, <laughs> ear ear spike things, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, she's she's basically looks like a slightly different bolus, which I think was really neat for the familial connection. So then, next up was Chromium the Mutable. Um, Chromium. We discussed him a lot last week, but yes, he had the probably peak kind of commander, maybe time spiral-ish ability, where it just really stayed true to the flavor and also was a very, very good evasion mechanic. Um, He turns into Ham the Tickery Man and keeps Palladia asleep, but also just, yeah, essentially turns into an invisible stalker, um, hexproof, unblockable for a turn. (laughs) <laughs> also, this is the first time I think we've ever seen a dragon using its wings to brace itself against the ground. Uh, Chromium, Chromium's kind of reared up on his hind legs with his forearms hanging down as he props himself up with his wings. It looks awesome. Like, it's 25 years later, and we're still getting new dragons and new dragon poses and new dragon looks in Magic. And that, I think that's just incredible. A big shout out to Cynthia Shepard, um, who was the art director for the set, and Chase Stone, the artist for this piece in particular. This is just, it's so good. We mentioned last week with the Global series how much untapped dragon space there is, because they have only done, what, six cards that are the Eastern style dragons? And, you know, you're, yep. you're saying that, but we're still talking about very classical Western-style dragons that we're still getting all this with. So, speaking of dragons, the next one was Arcades Sabath, or Arcades the Strategist. So, what's interesting about this card is it's the biggest divergence from the old art. Arcades was red in the old art, and he is blue in this new art. But flavorfully, they actually work really, really well together because the original Arcadia Sabath card pumped up the toughness of your creatures. And the new one is kind of a Defender Tribal card that has a Doran-like ability that they deal damage equal to their toughness. So I thought that was just a cool flavor connection between that the old card and the new card. That's not even the best line of text on this card. The best line, best line of text is where it says "draw a card." <laughs> like, so we'll we'll talk about because Arcady showed up in this week's story, which we'll talk about later. But this card perfectly matches the way they presented him in the story as kind of a city builder and a, a dragon lord of civilization. Uh, building up human community you got so. you got a small sense of that from his old card because he was seated on a throne in a building yes. where everyone else was in a cave or in the wilds so so his old card gave your untapped creatures plus oh plus two which is the rules text of castle so he he kind of mechanically matched that castle flavor hmm. which is similar to what he's doing here by playing up this defender theme. So let's keep moving. I wanted to shout out skilled animator really quick for being an amazing Beauty and the Beast reference with an animated uh, wardrobe, and I think there's a lamp back there as well. Lathless Dragon Queen is interesting. It's a new kind of dragon we haven't seen before. It's not a immediately recognizable breed. Lathless's horns reach around her head and connect at the back. So it's not really clear if it's like one big horn or if it's like two horns that grew together. It's a very cool look, but we don't have any lore on Lathless yet. Well, ideally you just grab that and then it extends out and then you can drag it through the airport. (laughs) 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 Why? (laughs) 
that's that's what I think of when I see horns like that. Like if it connects all the way back, that's just a handle. <laughs> so listeners, I just want you to all know that Carrie is like this all of the time. Oh no. <laughs> so the next one I wanted to talk about was Tezzeret's Strider, real quick, because uh Tezzeret's creations, his constructs, have have a look at this point. Basically, uh, the last time we saw a Tezzeret-branded construct like this, it was Tezzeret's Simulacrum from... Simulacrum. Simulacrum from Kaladesh. I won't give you crap for mispronouncing that. That's a tough one. I usually just say Simulacrum. But I want everyone to to recognize this design actually goes all the way back to Alara because Tezzeret is creating Salvage Titans. They have the the same design, the same look, and we know Tezzeret was a scrapper from back in the day, so his go-to design is the Salvage Titan, which I thought was pretty cool. So the next one we wanted to mention was Sarkon's Whelp, which I think there's been some debate on the interwebs about whether or not this is a... It's not Sarkon. Right. <laughs> it is Sarkon's baby. <laughs> Like, Sarkin can turn into a dragon. He loves dragons in every way. This is Sarkin's kid. Is canon now. Do we think Lathless is Hashtag his, is his wife? Yes. Or his, they his both make 5-5 dragon tokens. Dragon they have mate. kids together. You know, that does make sense. I'm near said now. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, Sark, Sarkin joins Tamio as... A planeswalker with a family. Can we? It's very wholesome. Can we just say that the whelp, whether or not it is Sarkon's get, is the cutest dragon ever playing in a little uh, puddle of lava? Uh, perfect. It's close. I, I still give the edge to the um, the, the the iconic master Shreya Shreddy's uh, furnace whelp. Oh that yeah, that thing is cute as hell, and it's got a little glowy dragon belly. With all the little fire in it, it's adorable. Yeah, Shreya is really good at... Th- this This one is pretty cute, too, though. Shreya is really good at monsters that are adorable and really shouldn't be. So the next one we want to talk about is a fairly infamous card at this point. Carrie? Yeah, already. It's only been a couple days. Yeah, it was a little poorly named. A Johnny's Last Stand? It was his last stand defending Alara from Nicol Boss, who is about to destroy it, but it is not a Johnny's moment of death, and part of the confusion also stems from him wearing Elspeth's cloak, it looks like, or a cloak in general, which was not really part of his Johnny Vengeant look, so confusing all around, but the official stance is that this is Alara Unbroken's ending with um, where a Johnny absorbed a little bit of the maelstrom and powered up his spell against Bolas, created an avatar, as the card states, that would match up against Bolas, and then Bolas flees the plane. So, I love it. I wish we had more of these story moment cards in there, but we seem to be getting one for each, so I'm happy with it as is. And speaking of the other one, Sarkin's Unsealing. Yeah, this card is awesome. Um, like the, these cards are not only showing old story moments, but are showing them in really flavorful ways mechanically. Uh, like we said, in a Johnny's makes the 4-4 avatar to match up with Bolus's 4-4 card. Sarkin's Unsealing shows, um, Sarkin while he was a pawn of Bolus in the Eye of Ugin on Zendikar. And this is when the Eldrazi break out. So, Bolus put him there to get in fights with specifically Jace and Chandra. So the first ability on the enchantment, whenever you cast a creature spell with power 4, 5, or 6, it deals 4 damage to any target. So those are the common sizes of dragons. Those are most notably for adult dragons, the three powers that the creature tokens are made. There's We have 4, 4 dragons, 5, 5 dragons, and 6, 6 dragons. And, you know, Sarkin's the dragon master and doing all this dragon fighting. But... When the Eye of Ugin is open, that's when the Eldrazi start showing up. So that's where the second ability, where if you cast a creature spell with power 7 or greater, 
which is something that has shown up on Eldrazi-flavored cards uh, a few times in Magic's history. The card deals 4 damage to each opponent and each creature and Planeswalker they control, which is the utter devastation that the Eldrazi can bring about. So I like that this card kind of levels up as the game progresses. You can cast some big dragons and start doing some damage, but then once you've played enough of the game and have quote-unquote unlocked the Eye of Ugin, you can start casting Eldrazi and start just blasting the hell out of everything else. It's very cool. So the next card we want to talk about is Limduel the Necromancer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Liliana the Necromancer, who has taken the exact same title as a certain infamous necromancer that we believe has a very close connection to her in the story. I was half convinced you were going to say Liliana Duel. (laughs) It's a matter of some debate what the actual title will be for... Uh, Liliana's card once Limduel takes over. So do you want to talk about the next one? Oh yeah. Um, one with the machine is Tezzeret putting that bridge in him. I mean it was an example of the kind of exclusive story moments we got with the Art of Magic the Gathering plane books where we would have story recaps but also varying levels of depth and planning that had gone into them. But specifically, there has always been a kind of, we discussed this prior in prior episodes, but there has always been some kind of twist to be revealed in them. Um, at the end of the Kaladesh block, we got news that they were going to regroup on Dominaria, and that was before Dominaria had been announced, so every Warthos who was clued in knew that we were rendezvousing there, but anybody else just didn't really know or didn't really believe that the art book was going to be accurate. Um, another instance of this was that same block. We had Tezzeret um, install the Planar Bridge core into himself. So it's really interesting in a couple on a couple levels because first, the fact that Tezzeret now, like this flavor text specifically mentions something that sounds suspiciously like he has attained some sort of old walkery power. Not literal old walker power, but like talking about like the vast additional power he's he's gained basically because he has a gate directly to the blind eternities and the ether uh i thought that was really cool but since we're talking about endings that if for some reason nickel bolus is defeated or even if he's not and tezzeret needs to escape he has the planar bridge on tap and i can think of certain planes he might go where he can use that ability to leverage himself into a position of power? It's New Phyrexia. Yeah, that's the one. This has been a um, gun on the wall for a while as far as we know that he met with the Praetors at the very end of his time on Phyrexia, and we suspect that he was there for some kind of planar portal technology, so him offering any kind of way off the plane for the Praetors, especially in advance of Karn nuking the plane, would be very, very appreciated and pretty much immediately establish him as Father of Machines, whether whether he wants that title fully or not, or whether he just needs some kind of power now that he's lost the consortium and kind of would have lost his position under Bolas. So, I'm excited. Even, even, even if it's a Bolas is defeated and Tezzeret has a what-do-I-do-now moment, or whether he betrays Bolas at some point and flees Ravnica and whatnot. Like, I've I've been waiting for Tezzeret to finally get apart from Bolas again because he's tried to do it in the past and now <laughs> he has the opportunity to do it again. And he, like, he doesn't have premending powers, but the gate lets him move huge objects across the multiverse, which no other Planeswalker can do anymore. So, so in a sense... It does give him a taste of an ability that Premending Planeswalkers had. So it's very exciting. And uh, he is absolutely the worst kind of person to have that kind of <laughs> phenomenal power. Absolutely, and um, I love it. He, he, he is an awful, awful human being. So it's going to be very exciting to see him be awful some more. 
So let's knock through some of the other ones real quick. Goblin Trashmaster, besides being an amazing name, is our first example of a Fiorin uh, plane setting on a standard legal card. This goblin is a large, hulking, hunchbacked, bearded goblin, which is a staple of Fiora. If you look at Grenzo and um, Doretti, it's the same kind of look as them. So I just thought it was a very cool note that we are finally getting a Fiorin in a standard legal set. So the next group of cards we want to talk about is set on Ixalan, likely for the most part in the past. So it's a very cool look. So the first one is Colossal Majesty, which is exactly my jam. It has the Temur... Uh, caring about creatures with power for a greater mechanic with a dinosaur stomping down on the ground and a bunch of little monkey goblins running <laughs> running away in every direction which is just pretty great and they're all na- they're naked goblins they're naked goblins <laughs> yes this is the past they're not pirates yet the next one is daybreak chaplain which i don't think a lot of people realize is Exelon, but if you look closely the symbols all over the artwork are another stylized version of the immortal sun that I can very easily see being turned into the black rose you see on the modern Ixalan vampires. It is likely before the Dusk Legion's church got taken over by vampires and corrupted because it's a human cleric who has sun powers rather than like dusk powers. Uh, we also get Regal Bloodlord, which is a vampire uh, who we can see doing the spirit coming out of a sarcophagus type thing that a lot of the ancient vampires on Ixalan are able to do. But it also calls bats. It makes bat tokens. So we never went anywhere with the connection to Aklazots, the god of night, the bat god from the continent of Ixalan. But... We've theorized that that's maybe where Alenda got her vampiric powers from. And if so, it makes sense that this now makes bat tokens. And I hope that's a connection that is explored sometime in the future. It's also, by the way, a vampire with bat tokens that makes them when you gain life. So that has to deal with numbers. So this is literally Count Von Count from (laughs) Sesame Street. (laughs) We also got a new dinosaur, Ruined Armosaur, which uh, we're recording this before the full gallery is out, so we're pretty sure that's the English name. It was previewed in Spanish. Um, we know it's on Ixalan because it has feathers on it, and it's got these rune-like patterns on its dorsal plates, which is not something we saw. But if this is Ixalan in the past, maybe this is a, the kind of dinosaur that started the religious reverence from the sun empire um if i saw a big hulking animal with a bunch of magical words written on it i'd probably worship it too i also think it's funny that it's a stegosaurus that draws you cards because stegosaurs are known for having obnoxiously small brains despite their body (laughs) size So then we've also got Israeth. Isareth? 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 There you go. Isareth the Awakener. Only took me three pronunciations. <laughs> you really jade that up. You really, that, <laughs> really you jade all over that one. We have gotten, I think it was M14 was the first core set to officially kick off doing legendary creatures in core sets and we had like odric during that time um Talrand from chandelar but i'm excited for any more kind of non-story legendaries in the set i don't think that the monocolor legendary cycle are exactly going to intersect with bolas's plans or the chronicle bolas storyline but this one just has some fantastic art um she's got a big vulture on her head Michelle from the Lorgoyce made the best tweet about this if you check her feed. I just love the art so much. Um, And I love the card too, but, you know, I don't really play black that often. And it doesn't fly, so kind of ruins my blue-white flyers plan. (laughs) 
this was also uh, a piece of art that's getting a lot of praise for representation because we see a heavier bodied person which is something that magic has really not included in its diversity until very recently we got a uh, last year when we got kess from commander 17 um izzy did a fantastic job making her a more robust human and especially an older human as well so Isareth continues this trend of showing not just diversity of race and gender, but also of body type to, to make sure everybody who plays magic is represented somewhere on cards. So the last card we want to talk about is my personal favorite in the set, which is Psy Master Thopterist. He is a Daisy guy, because it's a set on Kaladesh. Uh, Daisy is... Desh is the word for country. Desi kind of means, you know, of the, of the country, of the people. Uh, it's used to refer to South Asians in general. Uh, Sai is making a, uh, thopter, and we see another thopter flying off in the distance. They're both Paisley thopters, which I love. Paisley is a pattern that comes from the South Asian region. And I love that the, uh, the thopters evoke that style. But what's a really interesting flavor note is that ever since Magic Origins, we've known that the Thopters on Kaladesh are based on Kaladeshi butterflies, but we have never seen one until now. <laughs> and on size desk, he has some butterflies captured in little, uh, in little glass bubbles. So this is actually the first time we've seen them. We've saw Caustic Caterpillar way back in Magic Origins, which is where it was mentioned that the Thopter designs were inspired by butterflies. But we have yet to see the butterfly until today. Oh, that's perfect. I love it. I didn't even notice that until you brought it up now, so I'm appreciating it even more. It's a, it's very cool. I, I like when Magic can take these tiny little flavor bits that show up in like flavor text, and then years later, you know, pay off on them in some way. Uh, this is this is a cool way that that happens. Okay, so let's talk about Chronicle of Bolas, the first lesson. So we pick up again with the framing story with Yasova and her twin granddaughters. They meet a Jeskai warrior named Taijin, who... Uh, yes. Jay, this is 18 years after Fate Reforged. There are no Jeskai. This is an Ojutai monk. <laughs> Technically, but he is following a Jeskai tradition which is why he gets executed oh, cool. at, at the end. Um, so yeah, technically it's true. There are no Jeskai, but the Jeskai ways remain. So the Jeskai had a oral tradition that warned their people of Bolas, which I thought was very cool. It mentioned that he's... Given, given directly to them by Ugin, who, who we know taught them... Um, the manifest magic because that shows up on cards so it was it was funny because it mentioned that ugin was a a lie not a ugin that bolus was a liar that would flatter and promise you what you wanted to hear and yasova like hisses because she realizes that's exactly what bolus did to her and she probably wishes <laughs> she had heard this tradition before yep so if if you if you are not familiar with the tarkir stories Bolas only is able to kill Ugin because he manipulates Yasova into casting a spell that turns all the other dragons on Tarkir against Ugin instead of against Bolas. So she is like the linchpin pawn in Bolas's plan to kill Ugin, and she obviously does not feel great about that. So the oral tradition also suggests that you not suggest that Bolas has ever felt fear. Which is funny, because back in Future Sight, one of the things Lashrak taunts Bolas with is that he was afraid because he had been killed by a human, and it ends in a rather brutal uh, confrontation that we've talked about a few times. Yeah, Bolas gets super mad. It's really funny. I mean, he gets pretty upset at the end of the Legends 2 cycle as well. Tetsuo kind of has to convince him that, no, I actually got you this time. <laughs> and Bolas insists like thrice that it is a bluff and that he's just gonna kill him and return to Dominaria and then uh, Tetsuo just obliterates him so <laughs> doesn't matter but we learned in the flashback story that Bolas is like really scared 
of being of a majestic creature like him being killed by lesser beings working together which like perfectly ties into these old story moments perfectly ties into his uh kind of attitude towards the gate watch and people like a johnny goldmane and him calling um, people insects which is a recurring thing it's true yeah like he it's it's a thing that is new information about bolus but perfectly gels with decades of bolus fiction which is super cool so nickel and ugin go and the first elder dragon they come across is chromium who's studying a dark shape in the depths of this water. Uh, Is it Merit Lake? Oh, God. I don't know. Some people think so. Uh, I don't hey, think it's ever going to matter So, again. So, listeners, listeners, I will let you on a secret. It's never Merit Lake. So, <laughs> Chromium comments that uh, it makes sense that there are two of them uh, because uh, the two of them together only make one chromium, which is kind of true. I guess Ugin would be a 3-3 three, three if he had a card in the set. But uh, Chromium also comments that all Elder Dragons have two names, and he's asking why they just have one. And because they were twinned, he suggests that's why they each have one name. And that becomes important again a little later. Because This is also very frightening because we know that Bolas is around 40-ish feet long. Which means chromium is like 80 feet long. So, you know, he's like the size of a sperm whale, but can fly and is a dragon. That's very frightening. Well, this is also... And like all the other elders are like that size. This is also still like within a few days of when they were first manifested. So presumably Nicole and Ugin grew some since then as well. Since they were small enough to be taken down by humans pretty easily. Or at least Moravia Sol was. So... Uh, they, the next person they meet is Palladia Moores, who is very mean to them, <laughs> uh, and thinks very little of the runts. They get together and try and hunt together. And when they finally kill a, I think it's like a gazelle or an antelope, Palladia steals it from them. So they leave her hunting range and they start to learn, uh, coordination and planning through their working together to hunt, which is important to who both of them become. But from this hunting, we get two very different outlooks on life, where Ugin looks at it as the life and death cycle that uh, their hunting is part of something greater, which will probably go to his transcending color eventually. Bolus, his reaction is basically just, I want to kill something, <laughs> which is also very Bolus. It's very similar to their reaction to their sister's death at the end of the last story. I like that we're kind of progressing on their characterizations through these kind of repeated themes through the story as well. And we'll see how much that goes in future stories. They also mentioned that humans don't taste good, so Ugin doesn't like to eat them, <laughs> which was uh, uh, interesting to note. I guess that's good. The The last dragon they encounter is uh, Dragonlord Arcades Colony. And they, uh, Nickel has a very telling moment where he says, I didn't realize humans would trust dragons, which is going to play into everything he does later. <laughs> uh, except the humans don't trust them. They shoot arrows at them. And so Nickel burns a bunch of soldiers alive and the screams of the dying soldiers bother Ugin in a way that killing the antelope didn't. Uh, Bolus I'm sorry, Nickel and Ugin introduce themselves to Arcades, who comes out and they have a they have a ceasefire and they're welcomed in. Nickel introduces himself as Nickel Bolus, because all true elder dragons have two names. Ugin was just fine with being called Ugin. He doesn't care about having two names. Uh, I should note outside the gates as well, they mention having run into Vivectus. And his mob, which means he has a, a flight of dragons as well, but that there are even more dragons beyond Vivectus and his group uh, that are in groups or packs uh, or individual out there, uh, which plays into the Elder Dragon War. Yeah, we mentioned that last week that there's got to be more Elder Dragons showing up because we know there's going to be a war and the wars, a war implies that there's going to be a lot of dragons, not just the seven that we knew about 
also makes sense that Vevictus has this huge dragon mob because he is the, like we mentioned earlier this episode, the red center dragon. And being Jund aligned, I wonder if he sets up camp in Shiv because that's ends up being where uh, Rami Daragaz and the Jund uh, primeval dragons hail from. So they, the two young elder dragons, are uh, learning about Arcades. Uh, colony essentially where he's established law and order and he comments that humans are fascinating because they can accomplish a, a lot working together so it's yet another perspective more importantly arcades says that humans deserve to live yes uh he's very white aligned view that you know these are people they deserve to survive they deserve to be protected especially from dragons because dragons are big and scary and that arcades is trying to build them up and foster them and teach them and improve their lives. So Ugin meets a mystic amongst these humans named Tejuki, which is, I, I assume how you pronounce it. I don't, I don't know, but from her, he learns about magic and he also learns about planes because Tejuki is very, very wise and comments about uh, other forms of existence and educates Ugin on it, but also mentions that mortal beings can't cross the barriers between planes. So I kind of wonder if Teju Ki is a planeswalker herself teaching Ugin, or if she's just a very wise mystic. That was my initial thought as well. What I thought was interesting about his interaction with her was that she teaches him about the multiverse using these glowing orbs that kind of move around separately but have like barely translucent connections and then she teaches him how to summon this kind of glowing energy orb which is very similar to what the morph and manifest magic looks like on Tarkir later. They even use the word manifest. Yeah so I wonder if this is kind of just like a very slight, sneaky allusion to that uh, magic later. And we know that Ugin kind of his his magic power set is converting matter and energy, which sounds like a mystical thing that would that a woman teaching you about things being connected and not connected and independent, but synergistic at the same time would all lead to. So this feels like it's seeding a lot of the fundamentals of Ugin's worldview. Yeah. She it also used is. the word megamorph, though, so I thought it was a little out of place. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little on the nose when she started talking about the megamorphic properties in the multiverse. To protect the integrity of the podcast, I am obligated to point out that that was another carry troll. <laughs> So what's interesting, I'm glad you brought up the connection between the planes that Tejuki shows. Uh, that reminds me a lot of the story, The Hand That Moves. There was a, a lot of visions that Nissa had, and one of them were connections between worlds going back farther and farther. So this is a the first time those kinds of direct lines running between worlds has been referenced again. Yeah. Nyssa sees kind of a black corruption spreading from world to world through lines, which may have just been the ley lines of Amonkhet, but could also be interpreted as Bolas's plots and aspirations to rule empires on multiple worlds. So it's kind of a, a cool twist on what this scene is talking about, this very kind of fluid, translucent, kind of serene depiction versus the very opposite of that that Nissa saw. I will also throw this into the replies to the podcast on Twitter, but in the fourth edition's player's guide, this is literally how the multiverse is explained. Oh, really? As different globes and threads connecting and disconnecting from each other, and them spinning in sync with each other, so I'll throw that in there, but it's a very, very deep cut. That's cool. Well, this is the podcast of deep cuts. There you go. So, Bolas, while Ugin is learning from Teju Ki, Bolas is learning how to run a civilization from Arcades. He is not into Teju Ki's materialist ways, uh, and Ugin is ignorant of what his brother is up to, 
and right up until he discovers a murder scene that he's shocked by where a brother killed another brother that it's very, very heavily implied that Bolas used some kind of magic to force the one brother to kill the other. Bolas announces he's finally figured out how to get his revenge and leaves Ugin for the first time. And it's very interesting because it, you know, the brother killing brother thing is obviously something that matters for the Ugin and Bolas story. It's foreshadowing, foreshadowing. but to an event, to an event that was written about years <laughs> ago. So it's backwards for it's foreshadowing in the sense that this takes place 30,000 years before Ugin kills Bolas. But that story was written years ago. It's great timey-wimey stuff. But yeah, it's it, the focus on brother dynamics. Like, this is clearly a thing. Um, Bolas still wanting to get revenge. This is now years later, and Bolas still wants to get revenge for the death of his sister. And Ugin says he wish he saw the signs earlier about what would happen um I don't, this is this is like feels like a hinge moment where things start to go off the rails for Bolasa and Ugin's relationship so then the framing story ends uh with Taijin being uh killed by a Ojutai dragon for practicing the Jeskai ways essentially so, yeah, it was, um, this whole flashback story was the oral thing he got from Shu Yun, who was a Jeskai monk, the the one in Fate Reforged who originally surrendered to Ojutai, but apparently was still left alive, not left alive, but, but was alive at the time that he transmitted this story. So what's interesting is that Taijin believes that, uh, Shu Yun's records were destroyed but we know that uh shu yun had hidden away a secret archive of the clan's history that narset later discovers so we've got that and then last week we mentioned yasova has hidden away the dragon claw so i think if we go back to karkir we might see the clan starting to re-emerge somewhat yeah there were some hints of that in dragons of tarkir but you know you know this 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 story is telling two parallel narratives the origins of the conflict between Nicobolus and Ugin but also these now second clan that has continued its old traditions from before the dragon lords took over during Confall so we're we're seeing a lot of the elder dragon stuff which personally I, I do think is more interesting but we are seeing a lot of Tarkir stuff that could potentially key in on important things for a return to Tarkir. I also love the idea that we're getting these flashback stories a different way every time now. <laughs> like, I wonder who or what's going to show up next to give us the next one. All right. So, Carrie, you are going to lead us in the final discussion, right? Yes. It's more of just open discussion on what direction um, the story's taking. So my question to you guys is, do we get the Elder Dragon War explained in the story? Yes, I think so. They've gone they've Absolutely. gone such deep cut on this. Like, if we skipped the dragon the Elder Dragon War, I, I honestly we'd riot. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think all eight stories will be hosted in this fashion on Tarkir? You mean yeah, the, so. they've already established this framing story. So I don't think they all have to take place before Fate Reforged, though, because the Temer mystics could see into the future as well. So Yasova might learn what's coming. And then with regards to the name of the story is Chronicle of Bolas. Do you think this will be limited to... We already know it kind of reaches to Dominaria. Do you think it will involve any of his other plans that were not Dominaria or Tarkir oriented? And how exactly would we get that information? Because otherwise we don't really have a solid delivery system for, like, say, Alara or Ravnica. Yeah, it could really go either way. I think, well, we already know Ravnica exists, and we know that Ugin knew Azor 
So I don't think it's unreasonable for some sort of Ravnica discussion to come up and for Ugin and Bolas to have been there. There's no way there's no way Bolas's Ravnica plans were set in stone ten thousand. No, but he might have known about Ravnica a thousand years ago. It might establish why he wants the plane, because he he knew about it back then, but it didn't interest him. But his 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 whole plan has only been set up since the mending. I think it would be unreasonable to get a lot of those ancillary plans explained through Ugin. I'm not saying that they're going to explain his plans. I'm saying Ugin would have had to have, I'm sorry, Bolas would have had to have known about Alara before he went there to set things up. He would have had known Amonkhet exists. He wasn't just going to every plane he could find until he found one that met what he needed while his power was draining. So like, I don't think it's unreasonable that he knew about Ravnica and maybe the story mentions what was special about Ravnica that post-mending Bolas would be interested in. Maybe. Maybe. But then, well, so then, if all eight episodes are not framed in parallel with this Tarkir story, then that opens yeah, it, it up. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So so we'll see. I think it is but interesting I... being named the Chronicle of Bolas that it might just separate from Tarkir altogether, because honestly... How many of these flashback scenes can you get? Before it starts to get silly. Right, yeah. And where do we end up with that narrative? Do we reach all the way to Bolas's and Ugin's encounter on Fate Reforged Tarkir? Or does it does it explain everything to present day? Which would be, as we kind of said, a stretch. So Ethan's article mentions that focusing on Tezzeret was a, a bit of a goal for them and the planar bridge. So I wonder mm. if the framing story changes, if it'll change to Nicol Bolas and Tezzeret, and that's how the, the plans are being explained. I'm interested in how exactly this develops, because we have gotten kind of locked into this Tarkir groove, even with two stories, and we still have six left, and I can't imagine them keeping it all pre-mending. Otherwise, it like sets up Ugin versus Bolas perfectly, but it doesn't set up Bolas on Ravnica or pretty much anything he's done. I can't see, yeah, I can't see the framing story staying on Tarkir, because it's going to start to get silly with random people showing up to tell Yasova a story. Um, that was my only thing. That's the end of it. All right. Andrew, final thoughts. This whole section was kind of final Perfect. thoughts. Carrie, agree? Agree. <laughs> All right. Thank you, listeners. Uh, this has been the Vorthos Cast.